Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On May 12, 1898, the state of Louisiana adopted something that was referred to as the Grandfather Clause. This term is not the same as we use it today. At that time, one of the goals was to block African Americans from voting. Louisiana was not the only southern state which adopted a Grandfather Clause such as this. Seven months later, a future Pro Football Hall of Famer was born, and unfortunately, this type of action was something he would deal with for his entire life and career. This 2020 Hall of Fame inductee's name is Duke Slater. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is December 9th, 1898, and we are in normal Illinois. But I assure you, this is no normal situation, nor is it a normal individual, because this is an incredible story of a once forgotten man, finally to be recognized as part of this year's 2020 Professional Football Hall of Fame Centennial Class. But to paint this story for you, we bring on possibly the foremost expert on Duke Slater. Neil Rosendahl wrote the book on Duke Slater. He also has a blog and a series he calls Justice for the Judge, all of which we will leave links in the show notes for you. And by the way, you can get to the show notes for your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com which now takes you over to my page on the Sports History Network, the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. This is a network at the very early stages. So if you know of a podcast or other show that you think should be on the network, or maybe you're looking to start your own history podcast and make this your home field advantage so you can write, talk, or make a video about your favorite sport team or league and the history that is, well, go ahead and hit us up over on the website. But before we get into this interview, I must warn you, this is (laughs) the first part of the interview. And the second will be released next week, which means you know it. You got to definitely mash that subscribe button on your podcast player choice so you get notified as soon as it releases. And one reason why I bring that up is because I have a special opportunity for you. Neil is graciously giving away a signed copy of his book about Duke Slater to one of our listeners. The contest starts as soon as this episode releases, and it's going to run until next Monday, July 20th at 10 p.m. Eastern. So if you're listening in the future, uh, 
thanks for listening, but uh, sorry you missed out on this contest. There's probably another one over on the Sports History Network if you go check it out right now at sportshistorynetwork.com slash contest. And we'll, of course, leave that in the show notes links for you as well. So if you haven't figured it out yet, you got to go to the website. There's a lot going on over there. But for now, let's get into the interview covering the life and career of Duke Slater. Why did you even choose this book? It's about one person's entire career in life. Like, what was your inspiration for writing that book? Well, my background is that I'm uh, a Hawkeye fan. Um, I actually grew up in Iowa, in a small town in Iowa, and I attended the University of Iowa as a, as a student. Um, and I was always a big Hawkeye fan growing up and then uh, going to the University of Iowa. And um, in 2010, I actually co-authored my first book, uh, which was entitled Hawkeye Greats by the Numbers. And the basic layout of Hawkeye Greats by the Numbers is it's uh, 50 short biographies of 50 uh, football and men's basketball players uh, at the University of Iowa. And uh, each chapter is three, four pages long on uh, 50 different athletes. And that's the book. Uh, so one of the chapters was on Duke Slater. And I uh, was the, the co-author who was assigned to write it. So I was writing this chapter on, on Duke Slater, and I just became absolutely fascinated by him and his story and what an amazing man he was. And I quickly came to realize that uh, it would be almost impossible to fully accurately describe uh, everything that Duke Slater did in his life in three to four pages. I said, this guy needs a, a book all to himself. And uh, that's a dangerous thing to suggest when you're a writer, because uh, that pretty much sends you down the path of, of doing just that. And so... Uh, that's, uh, that's exactly what I did. I, I worked on that book for uh, probably uh, five or six years off and on uh, to put it together. And then it was released uh, in 20, 2012. And uh, I'm, I'm really proud of, of all the material I was able to put together for that book and, and really uh, to have an opportunity to tell a Duke Slater's story because he is just such an impressive, impressive man. Yeah, speaking of his story, uh, let's go back to the beginning of his, his childhood and moving on to his high school days. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, when you look at Duke Slater's story, he's a fascinating guy because his background is so heavily influenced by his father. Uh, he grew up, uh, the son of, uh, George Slater, who was a, uh, a black, uh, minister. Um, he was actually a, a pastor of an AME church, in Clinton, Iowa, uh, when Duke was in high school. And uh, George had a, had a real profound impact on, on Duke's young life. Um, Slater loved football. Uh, Duke Slater loved football. He wanted to play football. Uh, he, he played uh, football on, uh, uh, on vacant lots and with uh, just sort of schoolyard games with the boys. But when it came time to play in high school, he wanted to try out for the high school team. Uh, and his father wouldn't let him. Uh, his dad, uh, George, said that uh, it, football was a, a sport for roughnecks, is what he called it. And um, basically was worried that uh, Duke Slater would become injured. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because it parallels, I think, some of the concerns that maybe parents have today, 100 plus years later, um, in terms of, of letting their children uh, play football. Those are the same concerns that George Slater had all the way back in, uh, in 1912. And so when you look at Duke Slater's career, he didn't even play football as a high school freshman uh, because his dad wouldn't let him. And then uh, his sophomore year in high school, his dad still said, I don't want you playing football. 
that's what he said to Duke. And uh, Duke wound up uh, essentially defying his father and uh, snuck onto the team. And his dad found out and told him to quit. Uh, Duke Slater went on a hunger strike. And uh, for a couple days, for a few days, he just wouldn't eat. And he was just worthless around the house. And uh, uh, it was Duke's uh, uh, stepmother, actually, who helped kind of intervene and kind of uh, told Duke's father, George, hey, you know, let him let him let him try this. He's, he he he's passionate about this. And so George did relent. But George told Duke Slater, he said, I will let you play football, but you have to make me a promise that you will take great care not to get hurt. Do not get hurt out there. Uh, and so because of that, Duke Slater's entire career, uh, he would never let on that he was injured or he would never let his injury show. He would come home with bruises or he'd be hurt or whatever else, but he would never walk with a limp. He would never uh, do anything that was sort of led on to the fact that he was hurt because he was trained not to because he, he didn't want his father to essentially pull him. Well, that kind of created this mythology around Duke Slater because he also, of course, physically became one of the most physically strong and imposing guys out there. Uh, but it sort of added to this uh, aura that he had where he was almost this this invincible, uh, 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 chiseled mountain of a man out there who almost couldn't be hurt. And it was because he would never let on that, that he was injured. And so uh, that had a profound, profound impact on his life. And of course, he he wound up uh, playing in high school. His dad became uh, one of his biggest fans. Um, his dad eventually came around when he saw, obviously, how outstanding his son was, and uh, it provided him an opportunity to college education. So um, his his dad came along, but uh, uh, it was uh, a heck of a start for, for for Duke Slater, and then you know that just uh, launched him into a great career in football and beyond. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, gave him the opportunity to go to college. Um, so he went. He was at Iowa, right? Yeah, he went to the University of Iowa. He played uh, three years at, at Clinton High School in Clinton, Iowa, which is a town right on the the Mississippi River. And of course, as uh, uh, as an African American, he didn't have a, a lot of uh, opportunities uh, in different uh, colleges to play. He didn't have a, a ton of college offers. But of course, he wanted to stay in state for uh, uh, the local in-state uh, tuition and everything else. But um, what really helped, I think, lead him to Iowa, too, is the fact that Iowa in those days actually had already had a couple of black players play for the team. Um, I, uh, Duke Slater was the third black player uh, to play for the Hawkeye football program. And uh, Duke Slater was preceded uh, probably about uh, six, seven years earlier by a guy named Archie Alexander, who was uh, a black tackle who played on the Hawkeye football team. So. It wasn't unprecedented for Duke Slater uh, to uh, to go to a place like University of Iowa and play, and uh, he wound up coming to the University of Iowa. He played four years uh, from 1918 to 1921 at Iowa. Usually, you were only allowed to play three years in those days, but because his his first year was 1918, that was during World War One, and all the eligibility rules were uh, suspended for that year. So he was then able to play three years beyond that, and he played from 1918 to 1921 and uh, had a tremendous career at Iowa. He was a two-time All-American, first-team All-American in 1921 for a Hawkeye team that uh, has a legitimate claim, a mythical national championship uh, in 1921. And Duke Slater wound up being the, the first African-American inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame. When the uh, College Football Hall of Fame opened in 1951, 
Duke Slater was the only African American in the uh, in that inaugural class. Uh, so uh, he had a tremendous college career, and that just, uh, of course, helped uh, uh, lead him into the NFL. Right. Yeah, that's uh, pretty impressive to be in the inaugural class of the College Football Hall of Fame, considering how many players played during those times before then. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an amazing honor. And when you again think that that, that entire class was filled with white players and coaches and so forth, and then uh, one African American player. Uh, for Duke Slater, that was uh, it was very impressive, and and Slater in his day was considered one of the great college football players uh, of all time. Actually, in uh, 1946, just after World War II, they were kind of doing some delayed uh, 75th anniversary celebrations of college football, and Duke Slater was uh, selected as uh, one of uh, for an all time. Uh, college football team, all-time All-American college football team. He was one of 11 players uh, selected to uh, uh, be honored at, uh, at actually Wrigley Field in Chicago in 1946 as uh, on the all-time college football team, 75th anniversary all-time college football team. So uh, that that uh, really shows you um, uh, the kind of uh, esteem that he was held in. You know, that was an all-time team that was selected by over 600 uh, sports writers from across the country. And they picked Duke Slater as uh, one of the all-time great uh, linemen in college football history. Uh, that that really shows kind of the uh, uh, the stature that he had in college football at the time. And again, that really helped open his doors to uh, uh, to playing in the NFL. Yeah. So, what was it? Nineteen twenty-two was his first year in the NFL. Yeah, nineteen twenty-two was his first year in the NFL. Uh, he he broke into the league with a team called the Rock Island Independents in Rock Island, Illinois. Uh, that's a part of the Quad Cities. It's actually just over the uh, the river into Illinois, just across from Iowa. So it's it wasn't that far from where he played his college ball. And um, uh, Slater joined that team in 1922. He was the first uh, black lineman in NFL history. Uh, there had been four African American players to play in the NFL prior to Duke Slater, but um, uh, they were all backs and ends. Uh, none of them played uh, on the line in a center guard tackle uh, traditional line position um so duke slater was the first black lineman in nfl history uh he he made his debut on october 1st 1922 against the uh, the green bay packers and uh he helped uh, the rock island independence pull a pretty good uh upset or a pretty nice victory over the packers uh, uh on the packers final drive um rock island was holding uh, i think holding on to a five or six point lead and uh, on the uh, Green Bay Packers' final drive, Duke Slater uh, broke through the line on a couple of occasions and uh, actually swatted down a pass, an attempted pass, by uh, Green Bay Packers quarterback Curly Lambeau. And uh, Slater swatted it to the ground and forced a Packers punt, and uh, Rock Island was able to run out the clock. So uh, uh, from his very first moment in the NFL, uh, Duke Slater was making an impact and, like I said, playing alongside legends like Curly Lambeau and George Hallis and, and all the rest. So. Uh, uh, it was a uh, it was uh, uh, an impressive start to an impressive career. Yeah, it also takes me back when you talk about Rock Island, and then we're going to talk about 1924, just a city of which I personally never even heard of until I started looking at the history of the NFL. Like, wh- how was this an NFL team back in the day? You know, like can you te- can you talk a little bit about like what the what the NFL was like in the 20s as far as teams and things like that? Well, it's kind of funny because for the first, I want to say six or seven years uh, in the NFL, from the early to mid-1920s, all you had to do to get an NFL football team was put up 
you know, a, a nominal fee. You put up the, the membership fee. I don't know what it was, $50, something like that. And you had a team. It really didn't matter where you were based from or whatever else. So uh, what you saw was there were a lot of teams representing fairly small cities at that point. And what was, what was uh, compelling about that or, or notable about that from Duke Slater's standpoint was some of these teams in these smaller markets like Rock Island, uh, they were actually somewhat open to African-American players, uh, not only because it brought in a crowd of black spectators. A lot of times uh, they, would, they were able to uh, bring some people into the stands, uh, black fans wanting to watch these, these African-American stars, but it also helped them to be competitive on the field. You know, uh, a team like uh, Rock Island would have a harder time competing against a team like, say, the Chicago Bears, which had a much bigger market and, and, and all those kinds of things. But uh, if Rock Island was open to a player like Duke Slater, who might not be welcome on other teams because of the color of his skin, well, then Rock Island could get uh, a really good player for a cheap price and would be able to be more, more uh, competitive with, uh, with the larger markets. So it was kind of a free-for-all back in those days. But uh, it's it's certainly a fun uh, era to look back on in the NFL when you look back at uh, at, at the league in its infancy. Yeah, kind of similar. And, you know, we'll talk about when the AFL came into existence. It was the same situation. They were willing to take on different types of uh, players as far as even, you know, cast offs from NFL teams. And then they had an opportunity to compete. And, well, we know what happened there. But uh, speaking of we know what happened, I don't know what happened as far as Rock Island Independence. Tell me about when Duke Slater was there. Uh, well, the the year that I really point to with Rock Island Independence that is worth going back to and, and really memorable was 1924. Um, the Rock Island Independence were actually one of the founding members of the NFL when the NFL kicked off in 1920. But um, for the first few years of their existence, they kind of bounced around the middle of the standings. Um, but in 1924, they made a bold move in the offseason. They signed uh, Jim Thorpe, who, of course, is, was a legendary football player, maybe the most famous football player in the world at that time. And he was pretty, um, uh, I don't know if you'd say long in the tooth. I guess you'd say he's, uh, he, he'd been around for a while. He was, not, he was no longer in his prime. But he was still Jim Thorpe. He was still a phenomenal player. And so that brought a lot of excitement to uh, the 1924 season. And um, about a month into the season, Rock Island was undefeated and atop the NFL standings. And people were saying, wow, this could be the best team in, in Rock Island history. And uh, a real contender for the NFL title. And what happened was Rock Island had to go play a game at Kansas City against a team called the Kansas City Blues. Uh, now, the Kansas City Blues were a, a new team, a winless team. Uh, most people figured Rock Island would probably be able to win handily. But because they were playing Kansas City in Kansas City, uh, Duke Slater was not allowed to play. There was a gentleman's agreement back in those days that uh, black players did not play in uh, NFL games in the state of Missouri. Uh, the state of Missouri was very hostile toward African Americans. And um, uh, that was just the agreement that was on hand at that point. So Duke Slater sat the game out, and Rock Island wound up playing the same, uh, 10 of the same 11 starters that they played the week before, with the only exception being Slater. And Slater sat that game out. And uh, long story short, it was a close game going into the fourth quarter. But uh, Duke Slater was a, was a guy who I don't think I've mentioned this, but 
Duke Slater was a guy who played all 60 minutes of every game. Duke Slater was one of these guys. He never came out of the game. He played offense. He played defense. He played special teams. He was there the entire time. And in fact, when you look at his career in Rock Island, of the games he actually played, um, he played all 60 minutes of every single game. So uh, he was uh, one of these durable, uh, incredibly durable players. I mean, that's a remarkable statistic. But then when you think he's an African-American who's drawing, you know, uh, possible cheap shots, uh, well, certainly had to have drawn cheap shots from the opposing team, you know, it's even more amazing the durability he had. But anyway, uh, going back to that game against Kansas City in 1924, Rock Island faded in the fourth quarter uh, without Duke Slater, and Kansas City uh, pulled off the upset and handed Rock Island their first loss of the season. The postscript on it is that a couple weeks later, the two teams were scheduled to have a rematch. But this one was in Rock Island, Illinois. And because it was in Illinois, Duke Slater obviously was allowed to play. And there were a lot of people uh, suggesting that it was going to be Duke Slater's uh, revenge game or maybe Duke Slater's greatest day. And it turns out that he had a typical phenomenal game. Rock Island won easily in shutout fashion. I believe the final score was 17 to nothing, but uh, they pretty much dominated the game and won. Uh, but unfortunately, the damage was done. Rock Island uh, finished the year with two losses, uh, which at that time, the number of losses was kind of what was used to, to determine uh, the NFL champions. It was just a regular season standing. Uh, but Rock Island finished with two losses uh, at the end of the year, which was one more than the uh, 1924 NFL champion Cleveland Bulldogs. So, uh, And that was really Duke Slater's best chance to, uh, to maybe contend for an NFL title. And uh, the thing that I'll say about that Kansas City game where uh, Duke Slater sat out is that was the only game in Duke Slater's NFL career that he missed. He had a 10-year career, and the only game he missed was that Kansas City game in 1924. He didn't miss a single game due to injury or illness or anything. Uh, the only game he missed was because he was benched because of the color of his skin. And uh, at the end of his career, he played 99 professional football games. So uh, what would have been an even 100 professional football games in his career he was denied that because of the one game that he's forced to sit uh really because of racism but uh that's that's one of those uh interesting uh facts on uh, duke slater's career and uh uh really derailed uh, any championship hopes that uh that the rock island independence had well, and speaking of long career and with rock island i saw how he was part of there's really two different long-lasting NFL records that revolve rushing and he blocked for what was what were those two yeah well he it's it's funny you mentioned because uh well I'm sure we'll get to this later but in 1929 he played uh with the Chicago Cardinals and uh he was part of a, an NFL record that still stands today uh but in at the time uh when he was playing in Rock Island there was a really notable game he played as a rookie in 1922 uh, he played a game against uh, Evansville, I believe it was. And uh, in that game, the Rock Island Independents rushed for nine touchdowns as a team. And uh, nine rushing touchdowns by a, a team is an NFL record. And it is the uh, longest standing uh, team record in the NFL record books. Uh, nine rushing touchdowns by a single team in a single game. And uh, Duke Slater was was there for, for that. He was on the field all 60 minutes. Uh, leading the way for Rock Island to, to set that record, which has now stood for 98 years. Uh, no NFL teams rushed for more than nine rushing touchdowns. And it's one of those records that would be seemingly difficult to beat. But um, uh, one of uh, the players on the Rock Island team, uh, who's actually the player coach, a guy by the name of Jim Konzelman, 
uh, rushed for five touchdowns in that game. And that set the then NFL record, five rushing touchdowns by a single player in a single game. That would be broken a few years later uh, uh, when Duke Slater's with the Chicago Cardinals. Uh, but uh, it set the record at that time. And, of course, Jim Conzelman, uh, a great player coach, uh, would go on to be elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, as well. So uh, that was uh, uh, an extremely memorable game, probably the most memorable, memorable game of his rookie uh, season in 1922. But like I said, even uh, uh, from that first year, Duke Slater was, uh, was making an impact on his team. Yeah, I wonder if how much it had to do, like you said, the Rock Island Independence gave him the chance to be on their team. Because later in his career, when he went with the Chicago Cardinals, a big city market, I wonder if he would have ever been given the chance or after four or five years, whatever it was in the league, they're like, okay, this guy, we should probably get him on our team. And how did that transition go? Well, yeah, the transition was was kind of a... Uh, uh, a worthwhile story too, because that was the the founding of the AFL. Uh, the NFL has, on a number of occasions, been challenged uh, for pro football supremacy in the United States. Uh, 1926 was really the first year that that happened. Um, in 1926, uh, a player by the name of Red Grange had just broken into the NFL. Really captivated the, the country's attention. They went on a barnstorming tour. Huge crowds came out to see Red Grange, who had been a star at Illinois. Uh, Red Grange was one of the few guys who actually had an agent. He had a guy by the name of C.C. Pyle, uh, who was his agent. And uh, he, he really leveraged Grange's fame with a pretty audacious uh, demand. Uh, they came up that offseason and they said, you know, what does Red Grange want? Does he want salary? What does he want? And they said, well, he wants a team. And he doesn't just want a team. He wants a team in New York City. He wants a New York market football. He wants the whole team. And the NFL said, no, we're not doing that, especially because the NFL team at that time, the New York Giants, were in existence. And the New York Giants said, there's no way we're giving you a team that's going to encroach in our territory. So CeCe Pyle and Red Grange basically said, when they were denied the NFL franchise in New York, they basically said something even more bold. They said, well, fine, we're going to start our own league. We're going to challenge the NFL supremacy. We're going to start our own league. We're going to call it the AFL, the American Football League. And we're going to put you guys out of business. And then it was really game on. And so in 1926, there were actually two major pro football leagues, the NFL and the AFL. Uh, and Grange's league was the AFL. Now, how this relates to Slater's story is that when the AFL put their teams together, the Rock Island Independents jumped from the NFL to the AFL. They were the only NFL existing NFL franchise that jumped over to play in the AFL. And uh, that was a big coup for the AFL because, of course, Rock Island was a founding member of the NFL. But uh, Rock Island was also starting to have some financial problems. So they, it was kind of a Hail Mary from Rock Island's standpoint. Let's just try this AFL and see how it works. So Slater played the 19, most of the 1926 season with Rock Island in the AFL. And Rock Island played in the AFL uh, for that one season in 1926. Slater played with Rock Island for all of Rock Island's season. But Rock Island's season kind of came to a little bit of a premature end. Uh, the Rock Island Independents actually folded as a major professional football team. Uh, they, would play, they would bounce around a semi-pro for maybe a couple more years. But in terms of major pro football, Rock Island was done. Um, the entire AFL, in fact, collapsed. 
the entire American Football League fell apart. Um, and as that team fell apart, uh, the Chicago Cardinals approached Duke Slater and said, hey, you want to jump over from uh, Rock? We'd like to sign you to come play in the NFL. And since he was playing in the AFL, there was no uh, really conflict there. What, what I love about that, of course, but for Duke Slater, though, is he had so much integrity that when the Chicago Cardinals approached him, he said, I, I'm with Rock Island. And I, I'm not going to, you know, I signed with them and I signed a, a one-year deal with them. And I'm, it would have been very easy for him to just say, I'm, I'm leaving. Because he could he could read the tea leaves. He knew that Rock Island and the AFL were about to fold. But he finished out the year with, uh, with Rock Island. And only after they were done did he jump over and play the final two games of the Chicago Cardinals season in 1926. And so uh, that was a perfect fit. Actually, when you look at the Chicago Cardinals, they were a perfect fit for, for Duke Slater. Um, because back in those days, there were two Chicago teams in the NFL, Chicago Bears and Chicago Cardinals. And the Bears and Cardinals had a Cubs-White Sox relationship, where the Bears were the Northsiders. They represented the affluent uh, you know, white collar north side, and the the Chicago Cardinals were like the White Sox. They represent the South Side, the the really the blue collar, you know, and also on the South Side of Chicago, a very large black population. There was a black metropolis on the South Side of Chicago that was thriving and 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 large there, and uh, Duke Slater in particular uh, had actually grown up on the South Side of Chicago before he moved to Clinton, Iowa, as a teenager. He was actually uh, raised on the south side of Chicago. So for Duke Slater, it was kind of a homecoming. And the Chicago Cardinals then were a perfect fit because they could sign Duke Slater, draw a, a lot of fans from uh, the black uh, residents of the south side, and that would help uh, the Chicago Cardinals at the gate as well. So that wound up being a perfect place for, for Duke Slater to go. And, of course, the Chicago Cardinals, one of the things that I, will, I have to note about the Chicago Cardinals is – uh, the Cardinals, of course, still exist. They uh, bounced from uh, Chicago to St. Louis and then down to Phoenix, where they're now the Arizona Cardinals today. But I do think it's worth noting that when Duke Slater signed with the Chicago Cardinals in 1926, he became the first African-American to play for a current NFL franchise. So if you look at all 32 NFL teams and you backdate and you say, who is their first black player? The Chicago Cardinals can say their first black player in franchise history was Duke Slater in 1926, and that's the earliest of any of the 32 NFL franchises. And I think that's a, a fun uh, feather in Duke Slater's cap as well, and, and something that uh, the Chicago Cardinals, or now the Arizona, then Chicago Cardinals, should be very proud of as well. Yeah, I had seen something somewhere where they were comparing him to the Jackie Robinson of the NFL, but no one knew it or something like that. Whoa, how about that? Duke Slater, the first black player for a current NFL team. And how many of you would have guessed that was the Arizona Cardinals? I mean, not too many people out there would even realize that the Cardinals are technically the oldest team in the league either. Now, unless, of course, you listen to this show. But we're going to go ahead and stop it there for now and make you wait to hear why sometimes Duke Slater is considered the Jackie Robinson of football. So be sure to mash that subscribe button so you can get alerted as soon as part two of this interview releases. But before we go, I have another submission for a segment that I call My Football Moment. This one comes from an Eagles fan named Steve. Take it away, Steve. This is Steve from the Eagles Over the Years Twitter handle at Eagles Over the Year. 
I've been an Eagles fan from when I was a kid in the late 1960s. And like most football fans, those years included a lot of disappointment. So I guess it's obvious that for me, the highlight uh, would be Super Bowl 52. And I can tell you the moment when Brandon Graham forced the fumble that Derek Barnett recovered, because at that moment, the possibility of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl and becoming world champions became real and tangible, uh, even more so than the Philly special, which is what the game's probably going to be known for. The other moment that stays with me is from 1980. I was in college working part-time at Kmart, and so I was actually working when the Eagles played the Cowboys in the NFC title game. I was able, I was able to cap, uh, watch snippets of the game on TVs in the appliance department, uh, except for one. I picked the right moment to sneak into the ladies' lounge where they had a TV right as Wilbert Montgomery broke his first quarter untouched run into the end zone. And some memories change over time, and when you get a chance to see them on video, they're often a little different than the way you remember them, but not that one. At the time, it looked as if the sea parted and Montgomery just glided effortlessly into the end zone, and it still looks that way today. So thanks for the chance to share these moments with you at this wonderful website. Yours is a great place uh, for true fans to share old memories, and it's truly appreciated. Thank you. Well, how about that? Another session of My Football Moment. And don't forget to hurry to the website and claim your entries into the giveaway for a chance to win an autographed copy of Duke Slater from Neil Rosendahl. And again, you can do that over at sportshistorynetwork.com slash contest. And check back on next week's episode to hear if you're the lucky winner. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. Make sure you're the first to get the next episode. Please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.